All right, so thank you for listening. You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, where we take our live show from USF Bulls Radio, and we publish it here for you to listen at your enjoyment. Um, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, you're, you're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. This is Anthro Alert, the show about anthropology uh, and why it matters. So each week, we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. We like to preface each of our shows with a disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions we express on AnthroAlert are our own opinions and may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, the USF Anthropology Department, USF, or student government, or meerkats. Meerkats have opinions. Thanks for including that, Renee. Yeah. Um, my name is is uh, Renee Herrera, Renee, and and I am Spencer. And today we have a very special guest. Who is that, Renee? Uh, yeah, it was a beautiful day in Tampa. We've got a great show today. Leota Noche Dowdy is a PhD student of applied anthropology at the University of South Florida. Uh, Leota originally grew up in San Diego, California, sunny San Diego, and has her first undergraduate degree from UCSD in visual arts. So years later, her and her husband moved to Tampa Bay for him to finish graduate school. She went back to school in 2002 part-time to earn a second undergraduate degree in biomedical sciences from USF, while also raising a family. Uh, so... So inspired by learning pathology and other biochemical methods, Leota eventually stumbled upon the work of biolo- biological anthropologists Dr. Aaron Kimmerly and Dr. Lorena Madrigal from the Department of Anthropology here at USF and decided to complete the minor um, in anthropology as well. So, so anthropology made such an impact that she decided to take the chance and dive into graduate school under the mentorship of Dr. Kimmerly completing her master's degree in 2015 and continuing to pursue her Ph.D. with Dr. Kimmerly as, as her advisor. So today, we will discuss Leota's research, which involves multi-isotope analysis to aid with the identification of unidentified decedents. Uh, did I pronounce that right? De- decedents. Decedents, thank you. Unidentified decedents in the Tampa Bay area. So this method has been traditionally used in archaeology to look at past diet and migration patterns for past animal and human populations, but utilization of this chemical analysis has been really helpful in modern-day forensic anthropology. Mm. Man, that was that was a mouthful. How are you, Lodeo? I'm good, <laughs> thank you. Awesome. <coughs> um, you have a very eclectic background, visual arts. That's interesting, mm-hmm. making your way from visual arts uh, to a very different field of, of pathology and biological anthropology. Um, how, how did you get from uh, you know, visual arts to, to where you are now? Well, actually, while I was at UCSD, I wanted to double major in biology and visual arts. But I had to put myself through school, and at the time, I had a really great job. Um, And it was more art-related, so I went ahead and just finished up with that. And then after some time working in the field, working in film and uh, theater, I had the opportunity to 
go with my husband and do some traveling, and then we came over here to the Tampa Bay region for him to finish up school. And so at that point, I wanted to revisit the idea of going back to school for biology. But, you know, years had passed at this point, and I didn't realize how much was known out there. There were just so many different subfields of biology mm. I wanted to get into, and I considered going back to school for biology, genetics, and immunology, disease, and pathology. And so it was actually the human variation class that was taught by Dr. Madrigal that talked about past populations and the type of pathogens and diseases that existed that have carried on. So I was interested in the genetic factors of that. Mm. But listening, and I had taken anthropology as just as a fun elective, but then I kind of got sucked into it. That and always <laughs> seems to happen. <laughs> but it was always the sciences, uh, mm. the, the culture aspect of it, though, can't be ignored because we're really defined by our culture and our environment mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. but the sciences help lay down that foundation to mm -hmm. understand our origins and to mm -hmm. understand who we are we are now mm -hmm. but then the applied aspect of our program allows us to take what we've learned the theoretical aspects and the methods and apply it to every day mm -hmm. so that's why now i a lot of my focus is in forensics mm -hmm. but i still enjoy the bioarchaeology because i love finding about the history of our past ancestors. Yeah, uh, I'm, a, I'm a cultural anthropologist myself, but I always find, you know, I've, I've taken biological anthropology, especially as an undergrad, and always found it really, really fascinating, mm -hmm. you know, hearing about, you know, the, all, all the fossils, and there's just, you know, there's so many uh, different things to learn about in biological anthropology. It made my head spin sometimes, but, um, so you have chosen the subfield of forensic anthropology. Can you talk about that a little bit? We uh, have not had a forensic anthropologist on Anthro Alert yet, so this is your time to shine. Okay. What, <laughs> what, what is forensic anthropology? Can, can, well, I, can I ask a question first? Go for it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I watch TV on occasion, and um, I came across this TV show called Bones. Mm -hmm. uh, is, that, <laughs> is, is that what you do? Um, I guess if you want the glorified Hollywood-esque version, <laughs> yes and no. Um, you have this individual who's able to have her FBI sidekick and be able to carry a gun and all that great romantic stuff. And everything goes right <laughs> all the time. And then you have results within 24 hours, mm -hmm. and um, you're able to ID the person. Unfortunately, no, that's not the case. Um, the methods that you use to help estimate a biological prof profile, that does exist, but it's always a team effort. You know, you'll have a lead investigator, like our, our principal investigator would be Dr. Kimberly, my advisor, mm -hmm. but she collaborates with law enforcement all the time. We collaborate with other universities, um, especially with uh, isotope analysis. We couldn't do it without the help of other um, experts in geochemistry from University of Florida and also here, University of South Florida with the geological science department. Mm. And the number of endless hours that postdocs and other graduate students also invest to be able to help um, get leads on these um, identifications for people that have been missing or cold cases where they've been Jane and John Doe's for many decades. Mm. And so yes and no to, mm -hmm. the the, to answer the question about bones. I mean, I used to watch it before I actually started taking classes and 
after a class or two, I can't stand watching it any longer. <laughs> so frustrating. <laughs> but it's okay. I mean, it's fun. And, you know, it's good for the ratings, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yes, it's a group effort. Okay. And, unfortunately, sometimes, even with all the effort, um, the person will go unidentified. But I think with the progression of technology and people working together, it's gotten better. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm curious about a, a few things in forensic mm-hmm. anthropology. So, one, uh, like, what do you, what do you think separates forensic anthropology specifically from, say, just biological anthropology in general? Um, I'm assuming that you know you're working with cold cases and things mm-hmm. like that. So that's that's one obvious difference. Um, but I was curious if you know, from your perspective, what other uh, differences there may be. So I think the biggest difference, though, is there's a lot of legal ramifications. We work mm. with the medical legal community mm-hmm. in eight different agencies, and a lot of the work they do is confidential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very mm-hmm. sensitive because people are directly affected, people, the survivors. Mm. Um, there's a lot more bureaucracy involved. Yes, <laughs> okay. but I mean, I feel like there's still a lot of crossover um, when I'm speaking of not just the forensic cases that we've assisted with and um, the local community. Dr. Kimberly actually has done a lot of international work with helping identify individuals from mass graves internationally. Mm. We've, um, you know, had a couple of people from our program, postdocs also working for the International Red Cross that continue to do this type of work. So uh, many times, I mean, this is the work that we do, the evidence that we collect, this all has to go to prosecution. And so that's the seriousness of it. But the biological anthropology part of it still stands when you're trying to help um, establish identifications with people. Um, You know, our traditional thought is we're looking at different osteometrics for the individual so they can find out what kind of parameters biologically they are. Mm -hmm. They're male or female, their ancestry, aging methods, things of that nature. and also going forward with these forensic cases, um, we've also, with the technology, helping recreate um, facial reconstructions of how what the phenotype of the individual may have been. Mm. Trying to, you know, generate some leads because many times people won't speak up at the time because they're scared. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, many decades down the road, people will start to remember things and maybe people will start to speak up. But it's the same situation even in international fields. Mm-hmm. Um, many times there's a change in government and then people feel safer to be able to talk. Mm-hmm. Many times mm-hmm. it's also mm-hmm. cultural anthropologists going in there, helping people give a voice to the people that are marginalized, you know, and so... Many times, even in forensics, you still have a lot of people that cross over from cultural to biological, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, there's, like, you know, like you said, there's a lot of bureaucracy in, involved. There's a lot more steps involved, it seems like, um, in completing this this work in forensic anthropology. It's very, imp- very important work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how, as an anthropologist working on some of these cold cases or, you know, very classified information, are there extra steps to be able to work on these like do you need some kind of certification or um like who do you get permission from to access these types of files is it just the process of maybe forming relationships or you know with the with law enforcement or 
know, the medical legal society? How does how does that work? Um, it's a little bit of everything you just mentioned. Okay. All right. Um, so depending on the jurisdiction, depending on the county that you work in, um, it depends on the type of relationship, how much um, one agency is willing to trust another agency, that type of reputation you have when you go into it. Um, I think with Dr. Kimberly, the work that she was doing, she started doing this work when she was actually in grad school in her mm-hmm. PhD, mm-hmm. when she started doing some international work. And uh, over time, when she moved into this area, you know, the program wasn't well established yet. Um, it's actually having people come to you knowing what your credentials are going into it. They have it where you can um, take board exams now. And it's a very, there's a American Academy of Forensic Sciences where you can be, you know, certified very much. That's just like medical examinations. Um, I'm not there yet. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, you know, that is years down the road for myself and that's all right. Um, <clears throat> but that's something that we all have to train for, especially because we do testify eventually. And, you know, it will be your testimony against someone that's more experienced. Mm-hmm. And so that's another reason why it used to be for forensic anthropologists, if you've had the life experience, you could still testify and do a lot of work with law agencies um, with a master's degree. But that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you really need to have a Ph.D. Many times you're associated with the university mm-hmm. um, because you also need that lab space, mm-hmm. you know, and and because you're associated with a university and that lab space, you're doing ongoing research, which is really important. Mm. You know, these methods, they're still great methods that people have created for anthropologists decades ago. But with the new technology, you know, it, you can only enhance what you already know. And right. that's that's how science moves, mm-hmm. you know. Wow. Well, we're 10 minutes in to Anthro Alert, and we're already having uh, just such a stimulating conversation we're going to pause uh for a music break but before we do that we're going to have renee has a short psa from our sponsors this week renee all right everyone you're listening to anthro alert we're going to hop back in to the discussion with leota talking about forensic anthropology this week uh we've been talking about in general just what forensic anthropology is and she uh, explained to us a little bit about what the process is like um, in getting involved with some of these cases and forming relationships with the legal and the medical um, communities um, in order to do this important work in forensic anthropology. So we're going to hop back into the conversation, Renee. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been quite a conversation. Um, you know, my f- only question that I came in here really wanting to know was, you know, how similar is this to what I see on TV? And the answer to that was, no, well, not really. And so um, for the last 10 minutes, I was kind of crying a little bit inside. But I did hear some interesting things that I want to follow up on. Um, so you mentioned how as as the field gains access to new technology. So as new technology is developed, the field gains access to that. There's a constant need to continually learn how to use that technology um, to assist with the research and to assist with actual application of these of uh, forensic knowledge. Um, so I heard that and I was like, wow, that's, that is at the forefront of, of science. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> um, so I think one of the things that we're here to talk about today is the actual work that you do regarding the multi-isotope analysis. Mm-hmm. So 
kind of explain to us what that is, and then we'll go from there. Oh, sure. Um, actually, it was it's a geochemical analysis that early archaeologists were using for looking at historic bone. And they would do this to look at past diets and migration patterns of past populations. And so um, one of our archaeologists, Dr. Tycott, in our department, I teamed up with him so I could learn the process of it. And then I also teamed up with Dr. Kamenoff from UF because he looks at heavy isotopes and Dr. Tycott looks at stable isotopes. What had happened was a few years ago, now the technology and this analysis has been around since the late 1970s, 1980s, but it wasn't really known as a common method until recently. And it's only been really used in the last five or 10 years in forensic cases because they have found it's been very useful for trying to pinpoint a region, a locality for an unidentified decedent. And so with the help of Dr. Tycott, Dr. Kamenoff, um, and it was actually Dr. Kimberly who had reached out to them originally, too, um, to find out if we could start doing this type of analysis on a research basis with some of the cold cases that we have been looking into the last 10 years since Dr. Kimberly has been with um, the department. And so basically what an isotope is is just another form of a chemical element, and an example is carbon. Carbon will have carbon-12, that's the most abundant carbon that is out there, meaning it's got six neutrons and six protons. An isotope is just an alternate form of that element where the isotope will have either one up to four more neutrons. So it doesn't really change the atomic weight of it, but it's a good tracer. And when you're looking at mm. something that's organic, um, for stable isotopes. So we'll typically look at carbon and oxygen and nitrogen. Carbon is great because in most continents and most cultures, there's a specific type of agricultural crop that's dominant. So North America and South America, there's a lot of corn. You can't help it. The, there's a lot of foods that have corn products in there. But you look at places like in Europe where they have um, a C3 diet when that's consistently of barley and wheat. And the difference with these plants is it just has to deal with the yield um, carbon in the photosynthesis aspect of that plant. So many plants will go under this C3, C4, or a CAM plant. And so we can use that as well as they have in the past when they're looking at agricultural crops, the past diets. But it's helpful for us when we're looking at someone that possibly is from North or South America or Central America versus someone that's from Europe or from Africa or from Asia. They have different agricultural crops. So we use that carbon for that. And then we look at oxygen because that is indicative of climate, precipitation, and altitude of the geography. Here in Florida, we, it is hot. It is humid. We're wet. We're sweaty. It's just the way it is because of where we live. Yep. <laughs> it's a daily struggle. <laughs> yes. I, I, but I thought it was because the air conditioning wasn't working. <laughs> it's nice because yeah. we have really heavy oxygen isotopes. Mm -hmm. And that becomes embedded in our enamel and becomes embedded in our bone. Mm. But then you look at someone that's up north, up on the west coast in Oregon. They've got very light 
oxygen isotopes. It's mm -hmm. the same thing for continuity. It's, you'll have overlap, all right? I mean, that happens because you've got bedrock that has formed around the same time. But then we look at nitrogen sometimes. It just depends upon the case. Nitrogen is um, another protein that you can look at in hair and nails and bone. Hmm. And that's, um, that's affected by the collagen content. Mm -hmm. But that's helpful in looking at someone that has a very carnivorous diet, if they have a very high marine diet, or they live down the coast. Hmm. These are little clues, right? I mm -hmm. mean, because mm -hmm. you end up triangulating all these different elements. Now, for the heavy isotopes for our cold cases, and people have also done this in the past with bioarchaeology, they look at strontium because that metal is embedded in, the, in bedrock. And over time, you have animals that are eating the plants and that has the strontium in the soil. You have water that washes the strontium away that goes into the soil that's uptaked into the plants. So it's this whole chain um, of food, you know topographically and so you've got and then you end up eating the animals that might be locally too so that mm -hmm. helps mm -hmm. with that signature lead lead is looked more for modern cases because of all the anthropogenic purposes mm -hmm. we love our suvs with our gasoline mm -hmm. okay that's known <laughs> um and over time the last 50 years the leaded gasoline was really high in what in the 1960s, 1970s. It started that leaded content started going down until here in the U.S. We've pretty much you know regulations are like you're not allowed to have leaded gas. Mm -hmm. um, but you still have areas of the world that still use leaded gas in South America, some places in Central America, um, and there are some areas in the like just in the U.S. that have a very high lead content because of the lead, the natural lead ores. Mm -hmm. Um, also with like Australia, certain places in Africa still have a really high lead content. Um, other anthropogenic uses, gosh, leaded paints. Mm -hmm. When did we get yeah. rid of those? Not until the 1970s. Okay. Yeah. So they have been really helpful for certain cold cases because geochemists such as Dr. Kamenoff over at UF, he has access to that information. That's the type of information that he looks at when he's trying to look at leaded values for the leaded isotopes. Mm. Um, and so those are really helpful when you're able to use both stable and heavy isotopes because you can triangulate different regions of the U.S. I hate to say it, but here in Tampa Bay, I mean, it's a very, when I mean transient population, I'm not saying like it's a lot of homeless. I'm saying a lot of us are not from here, mm. mm -hmm. you know? And so you get this chemical signature that's embedded in your teeth. So what we end up doing is that your body can't reproduce new enamel once it's gone, right? Mm -hmm. And so with these unidentified people, we'll look at the signatures of their teeth and compare it to their bone. Mm. Because bone as our organic material remodels every five to ten years depending on what bone it is. And so what we'll do is we typically look at the rib bones because it has very little trabecular bone. And we can compare those values to the teeth. That kind of gives us an idea. Was this person actually from the northwest region, the northeast mm -hmm. region? Are they from here, from Florida? And trabecular bone is, is what? Uh, that's the inside of the bone. I'm sorry, okay. it's a spongy part of the bone. Okay. The cortex is like the outside of the okay. bone. It's been a while since so I've taken okay. <laughs> osteology. i got to brush up on my, my bio ant here. 
And so, I mean, th that's what they traditionally did in bioarchaeology when you mm -hmm. looked at populations. I mean, my thesis, I looked at people that moved from Central Asia into Hungary. Hmm. And that population, it was really interesting. They mm -hmm. were new migrants. You know, their values were very different from the people in that area. Hmm. So uh, we're just applying something that, you know, has been used historically to modern cases. So when you take this, um, like a rib bone per se, and like teeth, is there a process where you can, you know, um, you can do a test and it, and it spits out all of your oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, lead, all those levels, or do you have to test for those things individually? Oh, good question. You test them individually. It depends okay. upon the mass spec and the technology. So how do you decide which one to do first? Is there one that you typically will go to first because it'll yield more like high yield results or is it just maybe a guessing game no actually w you work with what you're given okay okay so here's the thing typically we'll use the anterior teeth or the first molar because those develop um when you're actually a child mm -hmm. and they typically are done growing and the enamel is done growing about five or six mm -hmm. and then with depending on the tooth type certain ones the enamel crown will develop sooner so if you have those teeth, those are the ones you want to use. Okay. And then you try to use the bone that's in the best condition, all right? Sure. And so typically it will be the rib bone, um, and so you'll be able to compare the two. Okay. We actually do the stable isotope analysis and the pretreatment in our lab, but we go over to the stable isotope lab um, that's run by uh, Jessica Wilson and, and Zach Atlas over here at USF. And then all the pretreatment that is done for the heavy isotopes um, that's a totally different process and really expensive equipment. Mm. And that is done with Dr. Kamenoff over at um, University of Florida in Gainesville. Okay. And so then that process takes usually a bit longer, mm -hmm. you know, because it is more complicated. It is more expensive. Sure. And so sometimes it takes months before he's able to get us the results because he's not running just for us. He's running for the university, for other people. Right. You, know. you got to find a spot on the <laughs> list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's the same thing with, you know, the stable isotope lab here, too. Sure. Um, sometimes it'll take a couple months before they can get to it. But, you know, I typically will drill down the samples and then do the pretreatment in our lab and then have her run it. And then um, th they give us the interpretations. Um, and then we also compare it to known data. And then now... I wish it would be a situation where you could say city and state, but mm -hmm. that's not always the case. You mm -hmm. can't. We can only give regions of where these isotopes most or most likely from. Okay. So, um, like regions in terms of like what what size like area? the northwest, the okay, midwest. Okay, so we're talking about yeah. real pretty Within, pretty broad. Yeah, yeah between okay. like five to eight states, okay. I believe. The, okay, that and makes sometimes sense. that is enough for law enforcement because they may already have leads that they don't tell you. Okay. And that's good. We don't want to know that information until later mm -hmm. because we want to give them, these are the values that we've come up with. Right. And it, that you want something <laughs> objective. Result. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Cool. We're going to pause the conversation right here, and when we come back, we'll talk about how we can use some of these techniques um, to look at unidentified descendants in the Tampa Bay region. So stay tuned. All right, everyone, you are back listening to Anthro Alert. Before we hop back into the conversation, we're going to have a quick message from our sponsors. 
Have you ever used the water bottle filler water bottle filler that is available around campus? Did you know that this system was a project started by a student organization? We are in Nactus, spelled E-N-A-C-T-U-S, and we are student leaders who are uh, who use business concepts to develop projects that help improve the community. Uh, being an Enactus will help you to get involved, develop relevant skills, and directly impact the community. To learn more about us, please visit enactususf.wordpress.com. Again, that is enactususf.wordpress.com. We welcome students from any major and year. Thank you, Enactus. So let's hop back into the conversation. Uh, I think Renee has some questions for us. Uh, yes, yeah, so... Um, as Leota was explaining the methodology of her research, she I think she said something like, you know, d- drilling. Um, and so I wanted to clarify what exactly, d- does that mean, so you drill samples out of the bone, and then is that how you perform the analysis? Yes, that's correct. So we have to drill a small powdered sample from the enamel for stable isotopes that only takes about 10 to 12 milligrams. And then it goes through a chemical pretreatment of very low-grade acids to make sure there's like, no bacteria or anything that could skew the results. And the same thing with the bone, when it, we do heavy isotopes for the strontium and lead, however, I need to be able to collect about 50 milligrams to do both analyses. And um, that goes through a more severe chemical pretreatment because you're trying to eliminate certain elements and the mass spec is meant only to read for strontium or lead. Mm-hmm. And, and you say mass spec, and what is that? Uh, mass spectrometry. It's a technology that will be able to take the sample, it becomes combusted into a gas form. And what the mass spec does, it reads those particular atoms and elements. And it can read, uh, depending on what type of mass spec you have. Either a GC or an HPLC. Which yeah. one do you guys use? Um, so they use the... Over at UF, they it's a new new plasma ICPMS. It's mm. a induced coupled plasma mass spec. Mm-hmm. And then I can't remember the name of the one that we use here for the stable isotopes. I keep thinking it's like a delta five, but that might be for the collagen. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's just dependent on how the machine is calibrated, because it can read up to one or two different types of elements, and it will look for that particular isotope. But you have to have an idea of what you're looking for. Exactly. Ahead of time. Yes. So well, I imagine this can get quite expensive. It can. <laughs> and so, because we're students, we do because we fall under research. We're able to do this at a more cost-effective method. There are other companies, um, Iso Forensics, that will you know the cost will be anywhere or Beta Analytic. The cost can be anywhere from two to five hundred a sample, mm. um, and it depends on the you know professor, the advisor, what kind of grant money you have that it's able to do this. We've done a lot of the isotope work in this past year because Dr. Kimberly was awarded a grant specifically for cold cases from NIJ, and because of um, the administration, there are certain things that are not going to be renewed. And, you know, I'm hoping that this momentum that we've built with helping on these cold cases, we've had the opportunity to help exhume Jean and John Doe's 
be able to also extract bone for DNA analysis that was not available in the 1970s, early 80s, mm-hmm. be able to um, help with a, a new biological profile because some they didn't have forensic anthropologists like they have now, like at medical examiner's offices in certain states, as accessible. And so by being able to work on these cold cases, we're hoping to be able to get more identifications, which has actually happened this past year. We've had a couple more identifications, not just with DNA analysis or isotopes, but also with the facial reconstructions, being able to rehydrate the skin to get better fingerprints, and and being able to submit for DNA. So like I was saying before, it's like it's a number of people that have come together that have to work and collaborate. And it's very an interdisciplinary field. And this is all done in the Tampa Bay area, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I know that other states are doing the same, but it really is dependent on the budget. Mm-hmm. But it's also dependent on the philosophy of that county. Right. You know. Whether uh, it's made a priority or not. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we are trying in the Tampa Bay region to make it a priority because there are so many cold cases. Yeah, it's definitely important work. So um, because, uh, you know, we're, we're running short on time this week, but mm-hmm. we at the end of every show, we like to talk to all of the professors and or students that come on about career paths in anthropology, uh, applied anthropology in general, and just their philosophies on um, on those subjects. So we would like to talk about maybe some of your insights on what a typical career path is for forensic anthropology students or graduates. Um, you know, what kind of jobs are out there? What, what, what can you do with this type of degree? It is a growing field. And, okay, I have to admit, with these CSI shows and Bones and things like that, mm-hmm. it's becoming more out in the public because mm-hmm. a lot of people had not realized that these types of positions exi- existed. Sure. And so it's also becoming more competitive, but what has happened is because of that exposure, medical examiner's offices are starting to realize it's a real necessity. It's that we are able to help them. Law enforcement agencies have reached out to us more often. The people, the relationships that we have with the sheriff's office, a TPD here in this area has been overwhelming and they've been so helpful and they really have tried tried to work with us and sharing information and vice versa and what i've seen traditionally with forensic anthropologists they're always been associated with a university of some kind because of that whole research aspect of it which is great and i think that's what dr kimberly has done as well but i've also come to find out that there's Uh, Forensic anthropologists are also being employed by a number of medical examiner's offices. Um, And even people that have um, left forensic anthropology just with a master's degree are also being hired as death investigators helping along with medical examiner's offices Hmm. um, throughout Florida. And so you could always stay within the academic research field, but you could always also go more into a, a domestic commercial field if you wished. When I went into this, I was really inspired by the work that Dr. Kumali had conducted while she was with the United Nations and working in Bosnia. Hmm. And that was something I've, I still would like to do, but I have young children, and I'm still in my PhD, which you know will mm-hmm. be a, f- a number of years still. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping when they go to college that I'll be able to do that type of work and I'll still be healthy enough and active enough hmm. that I'll have the opportunity 
but I'm at this point I'm just trying to learn as much as I can mm -hmm. while here I'm in the states. So working for the uh, like international organizations such as you know maybe the Red Cross or the mm -hmm. UN, are you um, in that position? Are you considered a consultant? So you're still your home university, and then I assume maybe they allow you to do sabbatical or something to do this type of work. How does how does that process? Well, you it's. It, both things that you just said that okay. you do have people that are, are faculty or postdocs with a university okay. but you also have people that are not oh, and they're, they're just hired as a consultant oh, okay and then they've got a contract with like the international red cross for a year and a half two years okay and if they wish to continue they could have their contract renewed and they would most likely go to a different country it's just the need mm. is mm -hmm. out there and it's dependent on how adaptable and flexible the individual is sure we also have, I was going to pitch also what was known as JPAC, but it's DPAA. And they're also consultants where they work with the military and they help bring home American soldiers hmm. from past wars. Can Oop. you, uh, what's that acronym stand for? Oh, gosh. Do you remember off the I top don't, of your I head? Know, I don't, I, I apologize, but I know it's like the, it was originally the Joint POW and Missing in Action. Okay. Um, they were originally called, yeah, JPAC, and now it's DPAA. Okay. So what do you um what do you see for yourself, you know, after after you graduate from your PhD in, you know, a few a few years. I'm not sure how long you have left. But. I have some time. <laughs> <laughs> I've just finished my coursework. Okay. So I still have my quals, my dissertation to write and the sure. chemical analysis. And what I'm working on right now is I would still like to continue using multi multi Isotope analysis, also looking into trace elements, mm -hmm. into bone and teeth, mm -hmm. with a geoprofiling or georeferencing unidentified decedents. But my focus will actually be here in Florida. Okay. Just because we have such a transient population. So many of the cases that we have are not actually from this area. Mm. Um, but I know others throughout the United States are doing the same thing because there's not enough information out there um, for contemporary modern populations um, especially now with importation of foods from you know different states and whatnot it's not so hard with the cold cases because people from the 1960s and into the 80s those individuals as adults are actually born you know in the 40s and 50s so importation of food and water was not such a big deal but it'd be interesting t to do a study and you know, have that included in my dissertation and my work. And so it's still really chemical-based, but I don't want that to limit me. Mm -hmm. And also when it comes to helping with pathology and trauma and things like that. So uh, I was able to look up and see what DPAA was, and it was it's the D Defense P-O-W-M-I-A Accounting Agency. Thank you. Okay, yeah. That's that's quite a mouthful. It, 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 yeah. So that's a separate a separate organization. You yeah, said. Yeah. Okay. They actually they will um, they've got a really cool program. They have like forensic science programs that will last. Internships can last anywhere from over the summer to a year. Wow. Um, what they do is they will also hire individuals with a master's, and they can work I think up to three to five years there. Okay. But they cannot be hired full time in permanent positions unless they have a PhD. Okay. So. Mm -hmm. The entry level to forensic anthropology seems like, you know, you're basically in it to the Ph.D. or you're severely limited in, in the opportunities that are presented to you, correct? It cor I mean, that is based on my own personal knowledge okay. because of the things that I'm interested in. Okay. Okay. And so I, 
I know that you can work full-time and be very happy in other positions that are associated in forensic anthropology with a master's. Okay. But I think for the most part, um, that would probably be the lesser of the degrees. Gotcha. Yeah. Renee, do you have anything to add to add to what we're talking about here? Do you have any have any the thoughts? Uh, well, I might have one or two thoughts. Um, but but no, actually, I don't. I you know, I'm, oh, yeah, go ahead. could I just yeah. I just wanted to say one last thing. Sure. Something that um, I realize I, I think I've said it throughout. But I really need to thank the people that have allowed us to work with them, mm-hmm. the different agencies. Absolutely. The Pasco Sheriff's Office, the Hillsborough Sheriff's Office, Pinellas, and like all these other um, medical examiner districts, mm-hmm. um, and also the people at UF and the geological sciences people here, Dr. Tycott. I mean, all these collaborations, we wouldn't have been able to have the opportunity with these identifications without these people. That's fantastic. Uh, that's what we're all about here on Anthro Alert is uh, community engagement and applied research, applied anthropology, and getting people from all different angles to solve the same problems and uh, do some important research that, that needs to get done. So we're going to pause the conversation right there. We're going to play one more song for you, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up Anthro Alert for the week. So stay tuned. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to WSF. HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. You've you've spent the better part of an hour listening to Anthro Alert, where anthropology is the topic. Today, our guest, Leota, um, talked to us a little bit about what forensic anthropology was, how it's not really like the TV show Bones, (laughs) but it's still interesting enough, and it could probably have its own show or movie many, many times and be actual, factual, and still be quite interesting. Um, So, yeah, we've had uh, a really good conversation today learning about multi-isotope analysis and how that's used to assist law enforcement in identifying um, unidentified remains. Um, I think, Leota, you had one other thing you wanted to mention? Oh, yes. I just also wanted to thank a couple other agencies, um, one being NICMIC. It's the National Exploited Missing Children's Network. And also NEMIS, it also helps with other cold cases. With the information that we've taken, um, we're able to share that with them so they can put that out there again. But with NICMIC, um, we've had the opportunity to work alongside with them, with some of their agents for excavating and searching for juveniles. But working with all these agencies as a graduate student gives us an advantage because it teaches us professionalism and diplomacy, Mm. which is really important, which you sometimes don't get until you're done with school life skills yes they're so important and i didn't realize that until you know i got into into graduate school Mm. they're just as important as the theory and the books and the methods absolutely yeah life skills are what what uh helps you to develop professional relationships and and Mm -hmm. further your career and theory can't always do that for us as much as we would like it to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we um, would like to thank you for coming on Anthro Alert this week. Uh, we had a fantastic conversation. Uh, I know I enjoyed it, and I hope you all did too. Renee? It was a good time. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we always love to have these types of conversations on Anthro Alert, and we hope that our listeners have learned something today. Um, 
that they may not have beforehand, because I know I did. I didn't know much about forensic anthropology before we started this conversation. So thank you, Leota, for broadening our minds. And that is all we have for you on Anthro Alert this week. Uh, mm-hmm. If you would like to read a summary of what we talked about, you can do so at anthroalert.com if you so choose. And the playlist for all the music that we played today will also be on there as well. So we're going to um, end with. I just wanted to thank you thing. both for allowing me to be on here. Thank you so much. Oh, it's our pleasure. It is our pleasure. We always love to have these conversations on Anthro Alert, and we hope that more people will take the opportunity to be on Anthro Alert and come and talk to us. So we're going to play out with some music, Renee. Yeah, you know, and and our usual three listeners is down to two today because <laughs> one of our listeners is actually sitting in the studio. So. Yeah, we do have a guest in the studio today, so we have an audience. All right. Uh, we All right, hope so you guys have a wonderful weekend, Renee. Yeah, we'll see you next week. All right.